I want to read to you then from 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 12 through to the end of that chapter. And pick up the kind of second episode in the story of Samuel. Now you'll remember that we began this series on the Nazarites some weeks back. And these are a unique breed of individuals in Scripture who are dedicated and devoted to God in a very special way. And so we unpack the story of Samson, the first story of a Nazarite. And now we're looking at the story of Samuel, who comes some generations after Samson. And we anticipate also considering John the Baptist finally as the third account of a Nazarite in Scripture. Now, jumping into Samuel's story, as we did last week, we began by just telling the account of his birth, the extraordinary and supernatural miraculous events that surrounded his birth, and the way in which God, you know, in a very real sense, created this man for the purposes to which he was calling him. And now we're beginning to delve more into the backdrop against which um, Samuel emerges. And I think we can begin to see some of the reasons for Samuel's emergence, as it become plain to you as we read this passage. I will say, as I begin to read this, this is a difficult passage to preach because it wrestles and exposes some very, um, very heavy matters in terms of the failures that you see, the moral failures that you see in the characters here. And uh, having already preached on this this morning, I came away feeling utterly spent after that. And I, I wanted to say that in advance this evening because there is, I think it's good to just be aware and be prepared that sometimes when we open passages um, of Scripture, we need to be aware that, that, that sometimes, it's, sometimes you feel like God's shaking, shaking us and doing um, some deep work in our hearts. And I certainly felt that this morning. So I say that in advance of reading it. Now, for context, Samuel is a little baby, a few years of age, has been dedicated by his mother Hannah to serve in the temple under the guardianship of Eli. Eli is the high priest. He is the top man in the nation, not only the high priest within the tabernacle worship system, but he's also the, the last uh, one of the last judges of Israel before the kings emerge. So he exercises the top sort of political office as well as being a high priest. Samuel's a boy growing up in his household. Eli has two grown-up sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who serve in the temple as priests. In, I, think, I suppose Eli's in a state of priest emeritus. He's sort of a retired priest, if you, want, if you will. And his boys are taking over the role for him. And that's what you have to understand as we begin to read this passage. Let me just glance up at verse 11, first of all. It tells us there that the boy, this is Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now let's read on. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. These are the two priests sons of the high priest. They were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, which means bringing your animals to the tabernacle to be offered on the altar, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. 
This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. That's a little priestly garment he's wearing as a little boy. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. And she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Now, no, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father? When they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh. He's speaking there of Aaron, from whom Eli is descended. Aaron, the brother of Moses. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then? Do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I'll cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I'll build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever.' 
and everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. God, we ask that in unfolding the tragic and horrible realities of this situation, Lord, that you'll speak to us and help us understand what it means to walk before you with fear and awe. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I began last week by just explaining to you how Samuel, like the other Nazarites, Samson before him and John the Baptist after him, how all three of them emerge in unusual circumstances from the wombs of barren mothers. And I asked the question, why? And just began by offering my, my perspectives on this. Two things that I think are important to note about these stories. The one is that I think God is showing that the kind of devotion he desires, the kind of devotion that's embodied in the life of a Nazarite, someone who is almost um, extraordinary in their passion for God, that that is not a natural thing. And that just as these men were supernaturally conceived and created... God is showing that that's what we need if we are to be those who are called to live for God. It has to be a supernatural work of God to create life in us, which, of course, all Christians understand is true of them. They're born again by the work of the Spirit. But then also that, that hunger, that love, that desire, that passion, that zeal, that none of that is produced from inside of us. It's a work of God in us. We receive His grace. We receive His Spirit. I was just recalling this morning as I was preparing and pulled out this quote from the life of Blaise Pascal, who was a a Frenchman in the 1600s who um, was a Christian, a mathematician, a Catholic, and uh, who wrote some important things. And his book, Pensee, which means thoughts or ideas, um, is a a collection of his sort of reflections and philosophical musings and so God-centered in its approach and has impacted many, many people. Some regard it as the most important book of apologetics ever written. And uh, he had a heart that was just devoted to God. And no wonder, because sewn into the lining of his favorite jacket was an account that he wrote there to be a memorial to him. So that as he would put on the jacket or open... Uh, open it, he would see and be reminded of an experience he had at one stage in his life. And I want to read you a few quotes from that. It says this, Memoria, the year of grace, 1654. Monday, 23rd November. From about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Complete submission to Jesus Christ and to my director. Eternally enjoy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. It's just one example you can find in the history books and also, of course, in the scriptures of 
a person who has been unusually touched by the hand of God, so that the devotion they then live out and display is not a natural thing. It's a supernatural and God-originated reality in their lives. And that was true of Blaise Pascal. It's been true of many, many, many others like him. And so I was seeking to show you that this is true of the Nazarites. They are, they are people God has touched. And their very birth stories illustrate that reality. But I also was showing you how they emerge from suffering. The pain, the the. Uh, the abject lack and need of mothers who yearned for children, then God supernaturally brings these children about. And so from the position of lack and need emerges these devoted men of God. And I think the same is true in our lives. It's borne out that very often devotion is not only supernatural, but it also emerges through the challenges and the difficulties and even the sufferings that we walk through in life, that pain becomes the forge or the anvil upon which passionate love for God is forged. And I think that you'll see this unfolding in the life of Samuel. Now, I want to further unpack this story then and and understand with you why is God doing this now? Why at this point in the story of Israel is he doing a unique work in this boy to not only that he be conceived in a barren mother's womb, but also go on to be the man that he becomes, the extraordinary man that he becomes. And the answer, I think, is plain when you read this chapter. That it is because of the tragic spiritual decline that is taking place among the spiritual leaders of the nation. And you know, one almost unbreakable reality is that whenever spiritual leaders falter and fall the effects, though they may be delayed, the effects eventually reach the populace or reach ordinary church members, if you will. And that's been true historically. I think it's true when you look at the history of our nation that most of the spiritual decline began in the pulpits before it affected the population. It's a horrible, shameful reality. And that's certainly what you're seeing here and why God is intervening here why he's working in this way. So we're seeing a pattern here, aren't we? That just as Samson was raised up amidst the backdrop of oppression and spiritual struggle of God's people, so now Samuel's being raised up against the backdrop of these failed leaders who fail catastrophically, abysmally, wickedly. And we need to examine this for some time. I will say at the outset, though, this is why I'm hopeful. Because if I see parallels with the world in which we are living, and particularly parallels in terms of the general decline of the health of the church in the West, then it tells me that God, who is mindful of these things, has a, I'm, sure, I'm certain it, would be in, it will be in his plan to set us apart individuals who are passionately, zealously committed to him. That's why I'm stirred to preach this series. We are in a desert and a barren wasteland when we look at the wider scene. What God is looking for are zealous people. And you cannot overestimate what God can accomplish through individuals, even weak and small people like us, when we are wholly dedicated to him. 
And I think this is what gives me hope. So I want to unpack this, but I want you to keep that in the back of your mind all along. What was going wrong here? What was going wrong? What are the marks of spiritual decline? Let's start there. Now we can first see immediately upon opening this passage, we can see straight away God's verdict on these men. You saw how it opened, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Literally translates, they were sons of worthlessness. It's a very Hebrew way of speaking or capturing it, saying that's, that's, how you can, that's how you can describe them. They were sons of worthlessness. That's all you need to know about them. I love that. I love it because in a day and an age in which we like to, um, we like to almost glory in our failings and our weaknesses, and a day and an age in which weaknesses and failings are so often excused and so often explained away, and so often with accompanying prevarications and umming and ahhing and all the rest of it, and, and also misplaced empathy, the Bible just gets straight to the point. They were worthless. And it doesn't mean incompetent professionally, which is typically how we use the language of worthlessness, you know, not, not, not able to, to do anything valuable, but rather it's talking about their spiritual status, their moral status. And the Bible just t- comes straight in and says, this is what you need to know about them. They were worthless. And then it adds this, they did not know the Lord. And of course, it doesn't mean they don't know who God is. They are literally professional servants of God in the tabernacle. But what it does mean is that they don't really know him. That they have never met him in a way that his reality has impressed itself upon their soul and upon their hearts so that they are living in the awe of the reality of who God is. There is a world of difference, isn't there, between thinking you know God and actually knowing him. And it's clear that these men do not. And notice how those two statements go together. They're worthless, they did not know the Lord, because those two things belong together. Or if I turn it around and put it positively, it is... The knowledge of God, the awe of God, the fear of God, the reverence that comes through a a heart that has been deeply overwhelmed with the reality of, of the God you serve, that's what gives a person weightiness and gravitas and spiritual stature and strength, the very thing that these men lack. Now that's the headline, what you have to understand about them. And then as we begin to unfold the story, you can see the ways in which this is illustrated for us. And I think there are a few ways that it's illustrated. One of them is how you see them treating the offering. And it could capture like this, that they're displaying contempt for the worship of God and for the offerings of God that are taking place in the tabernacle. Contempt. They were abusing the sacrificial system. So... As priests, they lived on the offerings that people brought. People would bring their animals, and portions of the animal were designated as the the food that the priests could take home to put on the table and feed their families. So God had provided for them, and he provided for them plenty. They They could eat well. But these men are not satisfied with what God has provided for them, and they do two things. One of them is they engage in this kind of potluck thing where they stab a fork into the pot and just see what comes up. And you know, one day maybe it's a stomach, and another day it's, it's the fillet steak or whatever it is. And it's like 
they just want variety, I suppose. And not only that, but they also want to make sure they get the fat in their food and they have the meat before it's boiled, before the fat is removed, before any of that goes on the altar. They want it and they're demanding it. And so they come to the people and they say, give us the meat before you present it for the offering, before it's boiled. And people are objecting and saying, no, 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 because they know this is going against protocol. And then they're threatening these people and they're saying to them, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish but we would say no you must give it now and if not I'll take it by force so abusing their position to demand what they want to satisfy their own greedy desires and the summary of it all is there in verse 17 when it says but thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt Now, obviously, we don't have anything like a sacrificial system in our day and age. So the the exact ways in which these sins are unfolding can't be reproduced in our time. So what's its relevance? And I, I see this on so many levels, friends. I see it in Christian leaders who misuse and abuse people by enriching themselves to the the cost of churchgoers. It's a tragic and not uncommon practice that certain types of ministers preach what's called a prosperity gospel. If you give all your money, you'll get wealthy. God will bless you with more. And of course, all they're doing is scraping the congregations for wealth and enriching themselves. And it's, you know, it's, it's not the exact same thing, but it's pretty much the same thing, isn't it? And it makes you want to spit. It makes you feel angry. What a cheapening, what a distortion, what an abuse of the gospel. Maybe more subtly, though, how about this? Back in the, um, well, probably about 50 years ago now, a new, a new thing began to emerge, that having churches having sung the same hymns that were written a century or two before for, for that amount of time began to experience the work of the Spirit, and new songwriters were emerging. Men and women writing new, fresh songs for the churches as the Holy Spirit began moving among churches. a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I think wherever God's on the move, you will see uh, expressions of creativity and the artistry that God has given us capacity for expressing itself in all kinds of ways, but especially, I think, in musical, um, in musical expression. But no sooner were songwriters emerging than they were also beginning to reach, well, firstly, LPs and then cassettes and, that, and then CDs and all that with with, uh, you know, with those, those mug shots, that sultry expression of the worship leader on the front, just, you know, just becoming the idol, effectively, and then gaining obscene amounts of wealth by, through the music industry that was emerging around these so-called worship leaders. And I, you, know, you ask yourself the question, who is actually being worshipped in that scenario? And I'm not certain it's necessarily always God, the human heart always has these tendencies to want to, to abuse and misuse. And if you go to the essence of what's going on here, friends, I think it's even more subtle than that. I think it's, you know, if you, you break this down to its, its bare components, here are men who are basically entering into the external formalities of worship, but with hearts that have no sense of reverence to God. So that there is this disconnect between their behavior, which even that was distorted and wrong, 
and all the posture of their desires. And I think that that's a commonplace thing. That all of us can show God a measure of contempt when our worship becomes hollowed out and empty, when it's merely a play acting, a performance, and sometimes not even a very good performance, because the heart doesn't love him anymore. And that was true of these men. They were spiritually dead, even though they were participating in worship, and God finds it contemptuous and calls it that. Another thing you see going on here, the evidence of their worthlessness, is their sexual compromise. And this is recorded a little bit further on when it tells us in verse 22 that Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, it's unforgivable, isn't it? But this is men in power doing what men in power have always done since the beginning of time. Using a position of power to take what they want and the gratification they want in a selfish and self-interested way. And the same things happen today, constantly, to a nauseating extent. The only difference, of course, between then and now is that if then this was still taboo, which is why Eli hears about it, people are passing on the gossip, the rumors, the shock of the situation. Now it's not even taboo. I mean, there are still situations when people go, but it's hypocritical even when we do, right? Because generally speaking, it's now socially acceptable and technologically enabled. And so not, the, the only difference between, between then and now is that then this might have been restricted to the most powerful, the untouchable people, like these men who couldn't really be called to account by anyone except God. Now this kind of stuff is commonplace among all kinds of men. There was contempt There was compromise in the arena of sex. And another thing that develops here is that there is a a hard-heartedness or a callousness to their hearts. Their hearts have become so impenetrable to truth, they can't be challenged. And this is what you see happening here when Eli speaks to them. He says in verse 23, Why? Do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now he's pointing out the fact that these men were the mediators. People came to them with their sin and their sacrifices and they would mediate between the people and God. And now they have no one to mediate for him because their sins are directly against God and there are no other priests. They are the priests. They've got themselves in a terrible, terrible situation. But then it tells us, but they would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. How do you understand that? 
How do you understand the fact that they're unable to hear the challenge of their father and actually respond to it and repent? Because it tells us it was then God's will to kill them. And I think, and I think the scriptures bear this out from similar passages elsewhere, that what we're seeing here is that these young men have, have reached the point of no return. Now, that's an expression that's used um, in the aeronautical world, I understand, for a, a plane reaching a point at which it can no longer turn back to the place from which it, it, it took off. So if you, t- if you fill up the tanks with, with jet fuel and set off across the Atlantic, there comes a point in that journey when you can no longer turn back if there's a need to go back. You can't. You're committed then because you don't have enough fuel to go home. You have to continue on with your journey whether you want to or not. And it seems that something like that has happened in their lives. There, were, there was a time when they were walking away from God, when they were, dal- they were engaging in these dalliances and these, these excesses, and they were testing the edges of the rules, and their consciences were, were at first pricked, but they're also enjoying it. And so they get further and further into, into the kinds of things that they did. But the further they go, the more they ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit who'd been speaking to them, the word of God that was telling them that it was wrong, they eventually reach a point in which they can no longer feel their conscience correcting them. They're not responsive anymore. They're dead to the things of God. And in that is, a, a, I think, the most terrifying warning in Scripture that for somebody who has who has who's who's described themselves as a a worshipper of God or as a Christian or someone who's a Christ follower, that if you then begin to deliberately walk away from God and if you put your foot into, you dip your toe in, in the water to begin with and eventually you find yourself just fully just going against the things that you know are of God, that there may come a time at which you can no longer see the bank, you can no longer go back to the shore, you can no longer return to the life from which you were rejecting because your heart is unresponsive to the challenge and to the Holy Spirit. And so in this way, many people have been lost. And this is what has happened to these young men. They become hardened. I want to warn you, friend, If your life follows this pattern, the emptiness of worship because you no longer love God in the way you maybe once did, and then the indulgence of sins that you know are wrong, take care lest you find yourself in that position in which you can no longer return and repent and can no longer respond to the word of God. The time to turn around is always now. How, how did they end up in this position? How might you or I end up in this position? What's at the root of their problem? It should have been different for them. Of all the people alive on earth at, their, at that time, these two men had the most spiritual privilege of anyone. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. They were descended from Aaron. They'd been raised by Eli within the tabernacle to know God's law and his word and to participate in the systems of worship. 
as privileged servants of God. But despite all this incredible opportunity and privilege that they have been surrounded by from their birth, they're the ones who are, who are living such offensive lives to God. Why? Why? And I think the answer is simply that they are, that what you're seeing in their lives is an expression of what I would call secondhand faith. Secondhand faith. If, if first-hand faith is faith that has been born fresh within the life of a person who's encountered God and repented of their sin and embraced the life that God offers and, and said yes to God, these men have never known anything except the faith that they've been raised in. And it's some, for some reason has not settled in their hearts. It's second-hand and they, they haven't made it their own. Now, this is a phenomenon, I think, that we see everywhere all the time. For those of us who've grown up within church and seen the challenges of those around us, I think it's, you know, the most obvious examples of this, and it's certainly a way you can describe this, is the problem of the pastor's kid, the PK. Eli is the top pastor in the land at the time, and these are his kids. And what a disaster they are. And sadly, this is all too common. It's, it's a tragically common reality. You know, I think there's been two very high-profile examples of this um, that had taken that my attention. Um, one of them was, there's a man who I regard as something of a hero, Francis Schaeffer, who set up the Labrie Ministry in Switzerland has impacted, he impacted so many, so many people for Christ. And then tragically, his son Frankie eventually made a mockery of his father and the ministry and the work, satirizing it and, and uh, really being very negative, turning his back on things. And I'm sure there are reasons within his story. I don't fully understand the ins and outs of it. And he seems to have made some kind of turn again, but it sickens you, doesn't it, when... You know, the very, the very uh, platform upon which he's standing and upon which he's criticizing his, his father was a platform his father built, in a sense, and then uses it to lambast publicly the faith in which he was raised. And he's done this very publicly, so I don't think it's wrong for me to talk about it in that way. A much more recent example of this is, again, another hero of mine, uh, John Piper. One of his sons, Abraham, has, I guess he's now in his... 50s or so, I suppose, an artist, and, and yet, having turned his back on the faith, has made a very public display of mocking Christianity, and doing so in this petulant, almost teenage way, just attention-seeking, and, and doing so through social media and the like, and honestly, it makes me feel nauseous. It makes me feel nauseous, and... And yet it's, it's so common. Because I mean, even if it's not pastor's kids, and look, I'm a pastor's kid. I think that many fare well and love Jesus. There's no one-in-one -one connection. Even if it's not a pastor's kid, it's, it's, uh, it's those around us raised within the church, raised within faith, who at some point are engaged in a, a hypocritical exercise and then maybe just reject the whole thing altogether which, of course, these men don't do. 
But that's the natural destiny, isn't it? The, the, the end point. Now, this second-hand faith idea is really exposed when the prophet, who's described here as the man of God, nameless man of God, comes to Eli in the second half of this chapter from verse 27 and begins to challenge him with God's verdict on the situation. And he shows us the problems there, and I'll, I'll explain them to you. There's three. One is the problem of inherited revelation. And this is how he puts it. He says in verse 27, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? This is an incredibly important statement because in the book of Exodus, when all this took place, Israel's in, uh, in slavery in Egypt. God begins to speak to Moses, first in the, in the burning bush. And of course, Aaron, his brother, gets caught up in the same mission. The big idea that's being communicated in the early chapters of Exodus is the revelation of who God is. It's, it's asking the question, who is God? This is God. God is the God of the plagues. God is the God who destroys his enemies. God is the God of re liberation and redemption and rescue of the people who he's covenanted with. That's what it's all unfolding. God who speaks. God who shows himself. Inducing the fear of God as the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. The only God worthy of praise and worship. This is why when Moses is, 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 is talking to God at the burning bush and being sent on his commission to go and rescue Israel, and he, he says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am, Yahweh. He reveals his name and thus also his person, who he is to Moses. That's what it's all about, the early part of Exodus. And then when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh, who obviously saw himself as a god, because that's how the Egyptian rulers understood themselves, replies to Moses and says in chapter 5, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not, I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And of course, you know, if you know the story of Exodus, you know how that works out. It doesn't work out well for Pharaoh. If he enters into a contest with the living God, he loses that contest. And of course, what it's showing is that God is imprinting upon his people the knowledge of who he is to induce within them the fear and reverence and awe and worship that will sustain them as his people for the centuries and millennia to follow. And yet, within a few generations, having revealed this to Moses and, of course, to Aaron, the prophet's pointing this out because these boys don't seem to know who God is. These men, these jokes, these worthless imposters, they don't know God. Now, I think that this highlights for us a desperate need that it's not enough for a person to simply know about God. You must meet with God. They knew about God, there's no question. They would have been raised reading the scriptures, the law. 
but they don't know God. There's a difference, isn't there, between knowledge that, is, that remains intellectual, that remains theoretical, that settles in your mind but never affects your life. It's the problem of inherited revelation. Now, we need to inherit revelation. There's no other infallible revelation but what's written in this book. You can't discover new things about God. And you can't invent a God. God's already spoken and it's here. But it's not enough to simply know the scriptures or to know about God from what your parents told you or what you learned at Sunday school. You must meet God yourself. You know this is true in other fields of knowledge. You know there's all the world of difference between reading this description on the back of a wine bottle and then allowing it to let its flavors explode in your mouth. There's all the difference in the world between reading about countries in, in your guidebooks and on your atlases and in your geographical textbooks and actually stepping off a plane and feeling the air, the heat or the cold and experiencing the flavors and the smells and the cultures and the sounds and all the rest of it. All the difference in the world between the notion of being in love, which you might be able to describe, and true intimacy with the beloved. And nobody can have a sustainable faith if all they have is ideas about God. That revelation has to settle in you, shape you, form you, experientially, in the deepest part of your soul so that you can say, I know God. And the prophets exposing this inadequacy, didn't God reveal himself? And yet clearly these men don't know him. There's been a breakdown there. It's the problem of inherited revelation. Similarly, then there's the problem of inherited calling. In verse 28, the prophet asks, did I choose him, meaning Aaron, their ancestor, out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? In other words, Aaron was the most privileged man on the world at that time, the only man who could walk into the Holy of Holies to engage with God in the most intimate worship on behalf of God's people. Privileged calling. And he's saying these men having inherited those privileges, now scorn them. And there's a problem here of inherited grace. Grace is God's lavish generosity to us. It's us receiving things we do not deserve. Grace is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with all the trees around them as fruit that they could eat and enjoy. That's grace. But the problem with inherited grace sometimes is that you cannot see all the generosity of God around you. All you can see is the thing you can't have. The tree you think you have to try. And here in the prophet's indictment, he exposes this. Halfway through verse 28, I gave to the house of your father all of my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. In other words, you had food on your table. You had a guaranteed source of, 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 of calorific intake, which was not an, a common thing in the ancient world. Food was hard to come by. You were well fed. 
you experience the generosity and the grace of God every day. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? This is being described here as the trampling of the grace of God. That he's given us what we need, but we want more. We want what we can't have. We want to take those things that are illegitimate because we're not satisfied with the goodness he's poured into our lives. And this is the basic impulse that exists within every heart that has particularly those who've grown up surrounded by grace. You've been You've been raised to understand the gospel, the lavishness of God's goodness, the freeness of his grace, the forgiveness that's offered to you. But you want the things you can't have, which is why you transgress. It's why you step outside. It's why you are tempted and then succumb to temptation and to sin. And for them, it was a very literal thing. They were growing fat. They were killing themselves through their indulgence. And what you have to understand about Eli is that although it's his sons that are the main sinners here, he's clearly raised them wrong in some respects. He is massively overweight. And it's part of the reason why he dies. Because when he receives bad news, he collapses off a chair and his neck breaks under the weight of his own fall. And it's a very visual representation of the kind of indulgence that's killed him. Indulgence that transgresses beyond the goodness. You're not satisfied with the goodness of God in your life. You want more. You want more, more, more. I cannot be satisfied with God's grace to me. I need the things that I am not permitted. So these problems align in their lives of inherited revelation, of inherited calling, and inherited grace, and they scorn the lot. And friend, don't tell me that this isn't relevant because I have seen this. I have seen this countless times. I felt these temptations in my own life. So the question is, is your faith your own? Has God, the weight of his glory, settled on your heart to take ownership of you completely? Do you hold him lightly? Is it easy for you to turn your back on him? How does God deal with all of this? Well, tragically and sadly, he disposes of them. You see how in verse 30 the prophet says, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You read on a couple of chapters later, you'll discover that Hophni and Phinehas, in fulfillment of the prophet's prediction, both die on the same day. And when their death is reported to their father, Eli, along with the fact that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken captive by the Philistines, Eli, in his shock, collapses, falls off his chair, breaks his neck and dies. And so everything that's predicted comes true quite rapidly. The Lord Jesus Christ, though he is 
so infinite in his mercies, does not tolerate sin forever. He doesn't. He gives us so many opportunities to turn back to him. So many moments when he's looking for that inclination, that desire to repent. And he responds to just the tiniest impulse. It's there in the parable of the prodigal son that as the son begins to feel his sorrow and comes back to the Lord, the father runs out to him. And that is so provocative as an image of the way God's grace works. God is, is ready, he's eager to run towards us the moment we see, he sees repentance in our hearts. But if it never comes, God disposes And so he does with these men. But, but there's something else going on here in the background. And this is where things begin to turn hopeful. And we'll resume this more hopeful narrative next week, I trust. But you can see all the way through this account of the, the, the tragedy and the, the, the mess of these priests. All the way through there are dotted these moments when the camera keeps turning to the side to notice this little boy. It was there at the start in verse 11. The boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. The boy. Who's this boy? It's Samuel. It's there in verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed with a linen ephod. So having just heard about all the mess with the sacrifices, the camera turns and says, Ah, oh, but the boy's there. And his little priestly garment. And the new robes his mum keeps making for him year after year as he's growing older. And we learn about these priests messing around with the women in the temple. And then it says in verse 26, Now the boy, Samuel, continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. He's growing up. Now why does, why does the author keep turning his attention to this boy in this way? It's partly just to show you the contrast, isn't it? The contrast between the corruption, the greed, the selfishness, what happens to these men who scorn God's grace, and this, the innocence and the purity and the servant-heartedness of this child who is emerging. We want to see that contrast. What are you drawn to in that story? Who are you drawn to? Who do you want to be like? But moreover, it's because there's a sense of threat here. That as God is seeing the grievous behavior of these men, these priests. At the same time, he is preparing his man, this Nazarite, this devoted one, this consecrated one. And so as the story reaches its final conclusion, at the end there, as the, the prophet ends his speech, he says in verse 35 that I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. A faithful priest. Isn't that what God wants? Faithfulness. Faithfulness to his call. Faithfulness to his, his commands and his, his covenant. A faithful priest I'll raise up. And I think the immediate fulfillment of that is in fact Samuel. 
The very next chapter begins to unfold the call of Samuel. What an amazing story that is. But also it's more perfectly fulfilled in, in Zadok. Some generations later, when King Solomon is on the throne, he dispenses with Abiathar, the last of Eli's descendants, and puts up in his place Zadok the priest. And then also more beautifully and fully is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful priest, the true and faithful priest. God prepares his people in the midst of squalor, in the midst of decline, in the midst of spiritual backsliding. God still has the ability to raise up and to call out individuals who are wholly his. And the camera now pans to you and to me. I do believe, this is why I'm so energized and exercised in the preparation and preaching of this series, I do believe that against the backdrop of us inheriting a squandered legacy in this nation of generations who've, who've denied and turned their back on the gospel and just grown apathetic and cold so that many, 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 many people have left churches. Against that backdrop, God is raising up Nazarites. And it may be the case, friend, that you identify more with the description of that second-hand faith that we've been dwelling on this evening. You've had privileges. You've known about Jesus. You've learned his ways. And you still would call yourself a Christian, but there is a gulf, isn't there, between the life you're living and the profession that is on your lips. There's a hollowness to the worship that might be called a contempt. And there's an acting out in sin that you know is wrong. What does God say to you? Here in this story, the 26th verse tells us that the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Then in Luke chapter 2, in the New Testament, verse 52, listen to what it says about Jesus. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. There's no question, of course, that Luke is deliberately echoing the description of Samuel there when he describes Jesus, who is even more wonderful, more pure, more perfect. The true Nazarite, the truly devoted and consecrated one, and the forerunner of our faith. When God confronts you with the reality of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is inviting you to give yourself to him completely, to come under his banner, his leadership, to not be like those compromised, mixed people who claim faith but don't live it out and who live miserable lives as a result very often, to come to the end of yourself, to give up your resistance against God and acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ, the true Nazarite, and let him train you in his school of faithful consecration and devotion to the Father.
You cannot regret that. But he says, come and die, and I'll give you life. He wants you to experience that personal knowledge of God that isn't just an inherited revelation. He wants you to receive a personal call that energizes your life, gives you direction and understanding of what you're here on earth to accomplish, not just something you vaguely heard from an inherited call. And he wants you to taste grace for yourself and to relish it and to lavish it in the goodness of God. Friend, is that something you want for yourself? 